First thing I'm going to do when I get back is get some decent food. Oh, you oh, yeah. Bring it up. It's more like it. They're monstrous, deformed, and available in four stupid flavors. Knickknacks. Eat the freak. Although edited for television, tonight's thriller contains scenes of suspense and violence which may be unsuitable for young viewers. Friendly discretion is advised. Back when I had my comic shop, we would keep a shop copy of the previews. This was important because we did most of our ordering on Excel spreadsheets. And typically those were just numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, five. So we know how many copies of a particular item to order, particularly with periodicals. But when it came to anything specialty, certainly any merchandise, we would just typically write that customer's name on the item. So when the item would ship, we'd have to figure out, okay, what's the order number? Because the, particularly the diamond order numbers always had the month of that particular catalog. And so you'd go back to the specific catalog and you could see which customer had ordered that particular item. And of course you'd want to have a shop copy because a lot of people didn't get previews and previews did cost you money and at my particular shop actually on both of my shops we had the policy of giving previews to people who returned their previews essentially as long as you were using the previews catalog to order your books you would get the following month's previews and it was sort of a loss leader especially in the days when there was a lot of competition amongst shops that was probably a very sensible move a lot of people just can't stand to actually lose money on something and so if you were the shop that would give people previews and of course putting a previews in people's hand usually meant and I should say to advanced comics or previews but most of my experience as a retailer was with the diamond previews but anyway ultimately the previews catalog unless you're the grandpa from the lost village or something you're not reading that to keep up with books you're not reading that as a replacement for the comics you're reading that to figure out what you want to order and because you're seeing the broadest selection possible the odds are good you're going to end up ordering more stuff because you have access to it and therefore our shop makes more money because we have a tool to get you to buy more stuff from us now of course that's a double-edged sword you also have a lot of people who would buy more than they could actually afford and then you're having to deal with deciding for them what books they were going to get since they wouldn't buy all their stuff or eating those books. So anyway, we kept those shop copies indefinitely because some items would ship very, very late, sometimes years late even. Typically, they would be returnable too and it wasn't a bad idea to know that because then I could keep an eye out for when the notice came in that you could return the stuff and we get our money back if we didn't have an opportunity to sell it. So we had those previews pretty much until the end of the store. I assumed that I took those previews and recycled them. Now, one thing that was fully and selfish of me was I still kept a previews for myself because I've been buying the previews or the advanced comics, the solicitation catalog, I should say. Going back to around 1991, I'd missed a month here and there in the early times, like within the first six months or so of my collecting them. But going forward, I, I pretty much got every one. There was a period there where I was such a completist, I actually got both advanced comics and diamond previews because they had different stuff. They would have different cards or bound in items or exclusive comic strips 
cool covers. You know, I, I just like having them. But especially in the 90s, but really uh, since the 90s, I should say, honestly, because despite the contraction of the comic book industry, the catalog hasn't gotten any smaller. They've just found more and different stuff to put in the catalog, which is pretty important these days since so many comic shops are really hybrid novelty stores. They're selling you Funko Pops, they're selling you models, they're sending, well, not models, they're selling you statues, knickknacks, all that kind of good stuff, posters. I don't know how popular posters are anymore from what I've seen. And the truth is, you're still selling a lot of comics to a niche market. I'm still buying a ton of comic books. Usually they're in trade paperback or hardcover or whatever, but I'm still buying them. They're still lining up the shelves. There's still a good amount of them. And I certainly buy a lot of micro press stuff. Eh, I don't know about a lot, but enough to where they're getting their money's worth out of me. So that previous catalog is still quite thick. And there aren't any other catalogs really. DC puts out a pamphlet with their books. I think Marvel may as well, but the mail order outfit that I use don't offer the Marvel catalog if there is one in existence. I think the expectation is you're just going to go online. That's what I have to do when I order Marvel stuff. I was hesitant for a while there with both Marvel and DC when they had periods of time where they did not have a physical catalog of any kind. I mostly targeted, you know, must-have books. I wanted to kind of punish them a little bit, to be honest with you. As a person who buys books, I want there to be a physical catalog for which to get the physical books from. I don't want, if I, if I wanted to go that route, I would just get digital copies, PDFs, whatever. But at this point, I'm pretty much over it. I just go to whoever's got the Marvel solicitations on a given month, and I, I look through it that way. I do miss stuff because I'm almost always checking the online solicitations last, right before I'm placing my orders. So I would say that still has a negative impact. I still don't look as closely. I definitely don't buy any floppies from Marvel for the most part, aside from maybe the occasional facsimile edition. But I know I still miss stuff because I'll come back later on like, didn't I order that? Like, nope, nope, you missed it because you never have a catalog in front of you. So I figure I don't have to intentionally punish the publishers anymore. Usually it happens just naturally because they screwed up. Anyway, I'm talking about the catalogs because I collected them more or less from around 1991 until sometime in the mid-2000s. What happened was I had been living in apartments on my own and then I basically had to find a new place to stay on short notice. The apartment complex I was living in decided they wanted to go Section 8 and what that means, if you're not familiar, is they, they essentially become government housing and so the apartment complex was asking me for a whole bunch of information that I didn't feel they were entitled to, especially since I did not qualify or need any kind of assistance. I was making money and I would pay them my money and I would continue to live there and because they were actively soliciting people who could not afford to live there under the current circumstances, I had to either do what they told me to do or deuce out. And of course they were low down because they tried to act like they could evict me, A, under the terms that I didn't give them a bunch of information that I didn't feel that they had a right to and B, that they could do so within like a month's notice and because it was the end of the year, there's like trying to evict me on Christmas thereabouts when I was paying my rent. So I, I wasn't going to play with them. I'm like, fine, bye. And so I started living with roommates. I looked at roommate listings. It's like, okay, well, I don't want to try to find an apartment and deal with paying down payment and waiting for the apartment to be ready and blah, blah, blah. So what I'll do is I'll try living with somebody for a bit, see how that works out for me. Uh, and I ended up having a, a series of roommates. And typically, you know, you're renting out a room in somebody else's house. So that means you're kind of limited to what you can bring with you into their 
their house. And it actually worked out quite well. <laughs> Some were better than others, obviously. But I ended up paying less money on a monthly basis, typically, especially because most of the time, if you stayed there for a long period of time, the rates for renting an apartment would go up, but nobody really wanted to come to you and say, hey, I'm gonna bump up the rent another 25, 50 bucks, whatever. So you kind of were grandfathered in to some degree. It was almost like rent control, I guess, at least on the short term. There were, of course, downsized where, oh, hi, I'm the roommate who owns the house. I'm not going to run the AC at this particular moment in time. It's not quite hot enough yet. Too bad you're sweating and all that kind of good stuff. That was an issue, of course. But in general, it was a nice experience. I ended up meeting my life partner through roommates. So that worked out fairly well. And technically, it's kind of the same situation because I live in her house that we got together. And, you know, I pay her a certain amount, which is a way, way, way less than I would pay for renting an apartment. But one of the downsides of that was I really needed to downsize my comics collection. A lot of the books that I had, when our comic shop closed down, I took advantage of my partner. She was sticking all the long boxes into her garage. And I figured, well, hey, while you're storing all these other comic books, let me throw a few long boxes of mine in the mix as well. You can store my stuff too. I just won't mention that at this particular point in time. And then, of course, we fell out of contact and that's where all of my Aquaman comics went, my Hawkman comics, my Legion comics, stuff that I didn't feel like I needed to have ready access to. They ended up with the comic stock and I'm sure by this point she's done something with those books and they're no longer an option for me. Not that I'm particularly de desirous of them anyway, but point being is, whoopsie. And another thing that I got lost because I used to be a comic book retailer and uh, I stopped and made bad choices, beginning with probably being a comic book retailer. So anyway, because I was going to get a roommate, I figured, well, I, I need less stuff to carry around. And also the fact is I'd already moved several times. My buddies had helped me to move several times. Milk crates of thick, acidic retail catalogs. It gets really hard to get motivated to move those over and over and over again. Ultimately, it's probably easier than moving long boxes. But again, I shed some long boxes too as a result of not wanting to have all this space taken up, whether into my apartments or in my roommate situations. So I decided it's time to get rid of these previews. So I went to like a local high school that had a great big recycling, I don't want to call it a dumpster, but that's just what they are. It's a long dumpster type thing. And so I took, you know, things like previews catalogs and any of the other magazines that I did feel the need to carry around anymore that I thought might, you know, potentially, you know, it, it hurts to recycle things like your catalogs. It's your comic book history there and you kind of have affection for it. So your secret hope is that if you put things like a catalog into a high school recycling bin, that somebody somewhere will be like, oh my God, this is a treasure trove. And they'll go diving in there. So I put anything I thought that high school kids might be into, into the recycling bin. At least they'd have a shot at finding a good home if it didn't end up just getting mulched or turned into another magazine or grocery sack or what have you. And so Certainly 20 years later, as a person who's a wannabe comics historian, doing podcasts, talking about the history of that time period, the uh, time period where I'm the most familiar with comic books, I certainly miss those magazines. I wish I had those catalogs today to some degree. I have the room for them now, but the truth is if I kept the ones I'd bought originally, they would have almost certainly been water damaged during a garage leak that one of my roommates had that screwed up a whole bunch of my magazines and a lot of those ended up getting tossed in the trash because once something's badly water damaged, you can't really recycle. I saved them that fate. They might have actually ended up somewhere good. And I, the truth is, most of that stuff I still wouldn't really desire or need. Most of the stuff from the late mid-90s onward is reasonably well chronicled. You can go to Grand Comics Database, the Comic Vine, Comicron. Most of that stuff is represented to some degree. Mike's Amazing World of Comics. There's a lot of online resources where if you need to find out what came out on a given month, a particular publisher. Honestly, for just a little word of the wise, for people who may not have uh, to this, one of the very best and most comprehensive archives is actually Lone Star Comics website, 
mycomicshop.com. There's been tons of stuff that I've found there and nowhere else because they physically have it come into their shops and they want to sell it to somebody and so they will do the write-ups and post them onto their website. It's one of those instances where capitalism it can be beneficial because they have a motivation and the resources to do that where a Grand Comics database will have some pretty glaring gaps and I'll be honest with you too, I've tried to put stuff onto Grand Comics database. It's very hard to edit there. It's way easier to do stuff on Comic Vine and I've done more there but the downside of that is it's so easy that there's a lot of Nimrods that do screwed up stuff and you can't trust the intervention there so uh, again two-edged swords long story long in the very rare instances where I come across the classic previews oh as long as it's reasonably priced I'll pick it up I've seen previews going for double digits I typically don't care enough to go that far with it but I was at a convention before COVID I believe it was in Boston and there was a dealer that had a few previews along with a ton of other industry magazines I, I, I had to empty stuff out of my suitcase and abandon it in the hotel room because I needed to make room for these big fat previews and comics values monthlies and comics features and all this stuff it's still makes me want to hit another northeast show because this stuff never seemed to turn up down here in the south a little bit lately but again it's because people have started to see value in them and they're asking for way more money than i'm willing to spend on these things one of the ones i picked up was the june 1993 previews because it had a bound in copy of plasma number zero which if i remember correctly was the one that was also a trading card set and i'd much rather have it as an actual comic book since it's a comic book rather than having it in trading card form there's a bound-in Spawn Spogs advertisement, a bound-in card for comics, Dark Horse Comics Golden City Checklist. There's a bookmark you can cut out from Mecca. There's an image of uh, Catalyst Agent of Change number four by George Perez. There's an image of Titan number three with from Walt Simonson. There's a scratch-off card related to the Sega Genesis X-Men game uh, and some sort of tie-in, I think, with the summer crossover of the mutants. There's a glossy color bound-in for Now Comics featuring Mr. T and the T-Force, limited edition Black Foil Embossed, Kato, Married with Children, Quantum Quartet, the Fright Night 3D Summer Special, Sting of the Green Hornet, Trade Paperback, the Green Hornet number 26, Ralph Snart Adventures number 4, a Mr. T and the T-Force t-shirt by Neil Adams, and the third issue of that book. There's a bound in Deathmate preview. This is the one with Grifter, Archer, and Shadow Man. Like, there's literally so many little weird things in here that I, I have to flip back and forth because one card will make it harder to detect another bound in piece. Uh, this one has the, to my knowledge, previous exclusive Kelly Jones wraparound cover. It doesn't wrap around, it's actually a gatefold because they would have a, another cover image on the backside promoting uh, X-Men 2099. It's a Jim Lee drawing. The front again, it's Batman, Robin, Bane, Two-Face, Catwoman, Scarecrow, the Joker. Actually, it's not a gatefold. I'm sorry, it's a lie. It's, it's just, it's uh, outside cover, inside cover, and then immediately there's a bound-in, perforated Kelly Jones image of the Azrael version of Batman. Going into the Dark Horse section, there is the two-page Aliens Earth Angel Chapter 5 by John Byrne, full color. Again, by getting previews catalog, I read that story serialized and then didn't revisit it until uh, this year or last year. The other one of the thick previews that I've picked up in the years since is Volume 2, Number 10, October 1992. Uh, it's got a Nexus cover on the one side and then a really horrible piecemeal thing on the back that involves a John Romita Jr. Punisher that's way too blown up and 
and a Mark Bagley Venom and then just red. You know, it's like, I I, I think an intern could have done better. So I figure it must have been somebody, you know, with, with even less production spirits, an older person who would have put that together. And again, the whole reason why much of this got brought up is because there is a two-part interview with Mike Richardson from The Horse's Mouth, The Conversation, part one of two. Problem being is that everything that's in this article, for the most part, this interview was already covered in the previous Alien special when I was vamping for the short stories I covered on my own. He talks about, you know, where the Dark Horse name came from. Apparently he was going to have a graphic design company at one point, and so it was going to be Dark Horse Graphics. He liked the idea of a word that inherently said, you're an underdog where the smart money goes. And then of course, once the comic company got started, they just recycled the name. Talking about how the first issue of Dark Horse Presents was produced by promising all the artists, look, there's there's not a lot of upfront money. You don't know us. We're a brand new publisher, but we're all friends. He pretty much called in people that he knew. And once the issue's published, and we get the money back, I'm gonna evenly split the profits among all of us. So Dark Horse Comics didn't actually get any money from Dark Horse Comics number one. It all got split among the creators. And apparently that was enough to buy their loyalty because most of these guys stayed with Dark Horse for years and years afterwards. All the guys who had their stuff printed in Dark Horse Comics ultimately continued to produce Dark Horse Comics, whether they were in front of, uh, you know, on the front line, actually credited on the comic books or involved in the production on the back end. And they're talking about all the books that are upcoming at that time but again this is 1992 so we've pretty much already touched on the stuff that talk about the production of cybernetics and how they you gave it gave them an opportunity to produce a children's book they would just slightly tie into the book that but give uh the children's book a bit of a, a traction in the direct market that it wouldn't have had otherwise gave them at least a floor on sales how they wanted to use tribes the way to bridge the book audience and the comics audience how one of their major goals is to produce comic books in as many genres as possible they were tired of seeing superheroes dominate everything. They wanted to give people more choices. They talked about how when first comics went under, they picked up the Classics Illustrated license and actually polished material that was produced for first comics that never made it out the door. How they sort of kind of picked up Kings in Disguise from Kitchen Sink Press to help give it more visibility. Their time period with the Universal Monsters license, which is something I'd advocated for a few years ago. Remembering that they had done those books, but not recognizing that clearly they didn't do terribly well because you've got Den Bovace doing the Frankenstein adaptation. You got Arthur Adams doing the Creature in the Black Lagoon adaptation, and yet those books seem to have vanished into the either. Either the people that actually bought them have just held on to them and they don't get circulated, or they, there weren't a lot sold to begin with, which I tend to favor. So I never see those books. And if I do, they're for ridiculous prices for my degree of interest, not because they're not worth that, because I really don't think there's a lot of them out there. But to finally find a way of making this re relevant to an Aliens podcast, I think there was mention of how Aliens was Predator number one, sold something like 400,000 copies, which should have guaranteed the number one spot. But unfortunately, it happened to come out the same month as a book that sold 2 million copies, Spider-Man number one. So they were thwarted in that regard. We have a chance to look at the arc of Dark Horse Comics. As discussed in the previous episode, how Boris the Bear and Dark Horse Presents number one both sold many times what they had anticipated, many, many times, and set them up. And one of the reasons why that happened is because they managed to come out on the tail end of the black and white boom, when there was just a whole bunch of terrible books being published that were being bought because everybody thought they'd be the next Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Out in fact, Boris the Bear number one was sold essentially as Boris kills all these stupid four-named knockoffs 
and there was an appetite for that in the marketplace. Dark Horse was getting set up before the boom started. They came out right before the bus started. And so it gave them a rare opportunity to get a lot of eyeballs on them and to be seen as quality publications that were worth supporting while all these other ones went into the quarter bins. Trust me, I go to the Marauder Comics quarter bin in 1989. All that stuff was in there. I'm sure I'll be talking about a lot of that stuff eventually on Comic Reader Resume. Because of the money and because of the heat that offered, they get the license to Aliens. Aliens is a sleeper hit. You see the advertisements for that book in all of the mail order services. Your New England comics, Mile High comics, all of them were pushing this as a hot book. And probably because so many comic shops probably didn't have on-hand copies of those issues of Aliens, it probably helped them as well. It's like not only is it hit because it's selling out at the comic shop level, but the mail order outfits, particularly the ones that bet big on it, actually had the stock and it gave you a reason to go to them rather than a local comic shop. So it was good for everybody. Dark Horse clearly made money off of that because they were able to go from the black and white first miniseries to the full color fully painted second miniseries, which was also a big sleeper hit. And it seemed like as words getting out, they're probably selling more and more of the comic books as pre-sale. They're probably getting greater penetration in comic shops. It seems like Earth War did quite well. I think that they probably overprinted that because the copies that I read, I got a year or two down the line. They were like stars of the month. If you don't, if you're not familiar with that, what previous magazine used to do is if there was overstock on a book, if the publisher had enough copies to make it worthwhile to do a another solicitation, they would just say, hey, you can order all four issues of Earth War from us this month. You weren't guaranteed to get them all because the print runs didn't necessarily go big enough to where everybody could get the copies. But if this is a book that you wanted, they'll put it out there again and see if you buy it. I got my copies that way. I got to read the whole story that way. I don't know if the trade paperback could come out by that point or not. I'm thinking not. So it was a benefit for me. It gave me a chance to actually read an alien story and, you know, a few years late. Eventually you get to that golden period of Dark Horse Presents, or you might want to say Silver because they had that notable cover where they aped the DC Comics annuals and they actually used silver ink on it. You've got Violent Noir of Sin City, which stayed in the top 100 at least as, a, as its own series once it spun out of Dark Horse Presents for several years afterwards. In the 1993 period, I'm seeing a Dame to Kill for consistently like the number one, number two Dark Horse comic in a given month in the top 100. You've got Next Men, which started out strong, was also definitely a top 100 book. Genocide comes out. That's another one that was before my time being able to pick them up off the stands, but I did see copies come my way through a friend that I had when I was living in Colorado. Then again, Hive, the first time I was actually getting the previous catalog, which gave me the opportunity to pre-order the entire miniseries and read it that way. So I'm finally at a point where I'm catching up with a lot of people and able to actually get these books if I want to read them. I'm there pre-ordering the Dark Horse comics, full color anthology, first issue with Predator and Robocop and Time Cop and Renegade, which was going to lead into Aliens, Predator, Deadliest of the Species, which again was a book that was consistently in the top 100, consistently the number one or one of the top selling Dark Horse books for its duration. If you remember correctly, the first issue was in the top 20. I discussed Colonial Marines being solicited, how because of the ties to the Colonial Marines, I felt the desire to order it, but I ended up taking a wait and see approach because I hadn't really enjoyed most of the Aliens material that I'd been exposed to up to that point. And the $2.50 cover price at a time where most comics were closer to half that was prohibitive. Plus, I was just more interested in the new mainstream material rather than an adaptation of a movie franchise as much as Aliens was dear to my heart. Not so much. As a person with interest in Aliens, but a limited budget, I was overwhelmed by choices of Aliens product in 1993. It was in this time period that I would also get the Dark Horse Insider pamphlet, tabloid, whatever you want to call it, where they would promote their books. And so I'm seeing cover features for Rogue. I'm seeing Sacrifice, 
Labyrinth, Salvation. It's just a lot, right? And then of course you have Alien 3 come out and you know, even I as a defender of that movie, I did not enjoy it the first round. I was not happy at all with it the first round. It definitely put a bitter taste in my mouth and probably kept me from trying Alien's books. And from what I've seen, I wasn't alone in that. Certainly Derek William Krabs talked about how he basically was done with Alien's comics after he saw Alien 3. And again, because Alien 3 was out there, Dark Horse knew they had a solid seller in Aliens. They wanted to make sure to support the movie and to support any interest generated by the movie. So they just had so much product out. And because they couldn't get Colonial Marines on a set schedule, and because Deadly to the Species was going to go on for two years bi-monthly, things didn't always work out the way they planned. And sometimes you'd have an Aliens comic for pretty much every week of a given month. They wouldn't come out staggered like that. You'd end up with like a couple or three on one given week because you had, I think, the bi-weekly Aliens magazine. You had Deadly to the Species. You had Colonial Marines. You had whatever Aliens main miniseries they had for that month, which would usually be four issues. You had Aliens vs. Predator content. You would also have specials and the like. It was just a lot. And I think that 1993, they probably just had too much stuff. Certainly me as a person who's covering this on a podcast on a monthly basis, I have expressed the burnout from just how many different projects I'm covering at the same time. So many projects that the stories are even overlapping. Like you've got two separate projects that have got the same themes and they're just exploring them in different ways, isolated from one another. And they're being published back to back. It's just so much. And then also toward the tail end of 94, eh, probably spring, summer, I had started helping out the comic shop that I was going to regularly for my books. Eventually they lured me into working for them full time. It was something of a pay cut, but I was getting to work at a comic shop, you know, living the dream, that kind of thing. And so obviously 1994, 95, 96, it's me like really getting into comic books in a way that I hadn't before because I'm not looking at them just as a fan, but also as a person who has to sell these things to other people. And also again, you've got the market contraction. 1993 was when the bust happens. And then for the most part, except for the most unhealthy shops, people survived 93 typically. You know, the ones that were not particularly well run or the ones that had a debt or the ones that just made a few bad decisions like having stacks of Turok number one lying around to sell for 50 cents a pop or whatever. Those guys took hard hits and those guys maybe blinked out in 93. But I would say the majority of the comic shops were still around into 94. And because of the contraction of the industry, I'm sure a lot of these guys figured, well, I'll just tighten my belt and we'll get through. Uh, unfortunately, over the course of 94, the belt was often not tightened around the waist, but around the neck. A lot of shops dropped out in 94, even more, or I don't know, even more, but the ones that survived 94, a lot of them died, died in 95. The shop that I had been moved over to died in 96. I'm proud to say the reason why they lasted that long was because of the comics and frankly, because of how I managed the comics. If they'd done more listening to me and less arguing with me, they might've stayed in business. And I'm not the particularly arrogant person. I'm just stating the facts here. That shop had a nice stable customer base. We continued to sell books. We continued to find ways of making that section of the store profitable. And it wasn't for new owners, mismanaging, skimming the till, from what I understand, taking on illicit substances, buying freaking signed basketball shoes with the intent of reselling 
selling them, despite the fact that anybody who wanted a signed basketball shoe from a local athlete could just go and get that themselves and not have to go through a middleman. Just stupid decisions like that. They, they would have stuck around longer. And thankfully, my talents were seen by another shop, and I was over there before the end of 96. I was over there before their, the other shop had even closed, and then I continued to be a retailer for a number of years. Long story, continuing to be long, one of the things I had to deal with as a comic retailer was overstock of Aliens books. They had been hot at one time. They were not as hot uh, by 1994, but the ordering patterns were sometimes not adjusted as quickly as they needed to be. Most of the product from 1993 got out the door. I don't remember having any spare Earth Wars. I maybe had an issue or two of Hive, but not a run or anything where I would have put them together as a set. Definitely had some Genocide number ones left over, but again, not enough to make a set. I think I may have had a Newt's Tail lying around. I think that did actually make those a, a, a combo. Definitely some leftover Dark Horse comics. Those went into the quarter bins. A lot of Colonial Marines, never a full set, but the quarter bins never herded for copies of that book. But also the last two books that are going to be in the volume two Marvel omnibus, Music of the Spears and Stronghold, definitely had those, definitely were in the cheapy bins. And I've had a sort of hesitant approach to Music of the Spears. I've already, in this podcast, used it as a punchline a number of times. It's kind of a dumb name. In 1994, I don't think I was aware of the concept of the Music of the Spheres. I'm going to read verbatim from it looks like a blog or website of a instrumentalist named Stephanie Chase. The phrase music of the spheres refers to the intertwined relationship between the structures of music and those of the physical world and a conscious awareness of mystical or spiritual qualities being transmitted through composed sound. All music consists of a form of dualism, an oral yin and yang in which consonance is inextricably linked with its complementary force of dissonance. One does not meaningfully exist without the other. Dissonance provides a form of tension, an unsettling relation in the notes of music, and is relieved by the consonance of resolution. We hear this whether we are listening to Bach, Mozart, Bartok, or Applebaum. Although the balance is often shifted towards dissonance in post-20th century music, perhaps in reflection of societal conflicts, Pythagoras is credited with having discovered the physical relationship expressed as ratios between mass and sound. He is also credited with having invented the monochord, essentially a stretched gut string on a soundboard with movable bridges for testing harmonic properties and the rapport with numerical ratios. The octave ratio of 1-2 means that a mass, such as a string on any material, will produce a frequency an octave above the pitch of its full length when it is reduced by one half. For example, the open A string of the violin sounds at pitch at about 440 vibrations per second. When the string is stopped by the violinist's finger so that only half of its original length is vibrating, it sounds an A that is an octave higher and vibrating twice as quickly. Simply stated, to play this musical interval, one part of the string length out of two parts total, the ratio 1-2, is set into vibration. The ratio for the fifth is 2-3. Two, two parts out of three are vibrating, and that of the fourth is 3-4. Pythagoras and his followers believed that a universal philosophy could be founded in numbers. They differentiated three types of music, the music of instruments, the music of the human body and soul, and the music of the spheres which was the music of the cosmos. Geometric shapes and even orbiting motions could be linked to this philosophy. Indeed, Pythagoras could arguably be the first proponent of string theory as a tool to understanding the universe. And the important symbol, according to Pliny, Pythagoras devised a literal music of the spheres by using musical intervals to describe the distances between the moon and the known planets. Plato took up the idea of a universal philosophy through numbers and their musical associations and devised a series that he termed the world's soul. By using these as musical ratios, he created a series of musical notes that gave a default mathematical ratio for 
for the half step. These intervals are inherently subjective and context sensitive, however, and have led to epic battles over desirable tuning temperaments, in part due to the fact that fixed pitch instruments like pianos have one pitch to represent at least two distinct notes. The great Johann Kepler followed these leads in developing his laws of planetary motion, describing the relationships of planets and their orbits through numbers and ratios, and using them to create geometric figures of two and three dimensions. He also employed musical references and even desired to create a symphony of the cosmos, stating that the movements of the heavens are nothing except a certain everlasting polyphony. Sir Isaac Newton was likewise inspired by the cosmic music of the ancients, as set forth in Proposition 8 of his Principia. The notion of the music of the spheres continues today through studies of cosmic background radiation and string theory, among many other applications, and composers have often been directly or indirectly inspired by its concepts. Mozart's frequent musical allusions to Masonic symbolism continue this notion, and Lou Harrison used the sounds of our world's music through time and space to create memorably beautiful and compelling sounds in new combinations. Beethoven's music of the spheres derives from a romantic appreciation of the oneness of nature with the interior music of the soul. Strauss was also moved to create the music of the spheres waltz, which links many lovely dances after a celestial introduction. So subtly it makes sense that I spoke at such length about comic book solicitation catalogs for podcasts related to comic books, as opposed to reading the majority of an article about mathematical and astronomical properties tied into musical theory. Not necessarily a huge crossover of audiences, but it does remind me of how I had the idea of maybe trying to bring in a musician to be co-host for this episode. Problem being, as mentioned, burnout. I also have a backlog of podcasts that have been recorded over the last several years that have yet to see the light of day, and I'm still very timid or just outright disinterested in approaching people I've talked to before or any new people to do new recordings when I have such a large catalog of unreleased recordings. It's just going to be easier for me to take this one on by myself. But when I look back at stuff like this dissertation on the music of the spheres, it would have been really nice to have somebody with a background in music for this episode. Also, it would have been really nice if I had still had all my notes that I had prepared to use the script for this episode. Unfortunately, they were lost and I had to wing it. So things maybe ran a little bit longer than they would have if I'd had time to edit them and go off script. But at least I'm not stammering or clearly reading from notes in a monotone. I figured it'd be a nice relief for you folks. Anyway, I had strong reservations going into Music of the Spears. I knew it was an undersold, underloved Aliens project. I knew it was a pretentious name. The name alludes to something that could be very cosmic. I actually see a lot of potential in a Music of the Spheres book for Aliens because you could get into some kind of Arthur C. Clarke, Stanley Kubrickian, cold, distant, cosmic, universal type of story. Maybe even get into some, something a little bit more Lovecraftian. The potential is certainly there. Problem is, it's not called Music of the Spheres. It's called Music of the Spears. And again, as a person reading a solicitation catalog, not familiar with the concept that it's alluding to, not aware that it's a pun, but regardless, it is a pun. Music of the Spears just sounds stupid. And the first issue cover had ninjas on it. So my take, because I'm not confident that I even read the solicitation, my take is this is aliens in feudal Japan. <laughs> you know, completely misrepresenting the story. And then again, as I get older and I become cognizant of music of the spheres, then I know it's a stupid pun. And I've never heard any kind of love given to this series. So again, that's setting me up for mocking it in past episodes of the podcast, having hesitation to invite anybody to read this with me and cover it with me. Hesitation to read it myself. I, I don't need to read another crappy alien story. I'm going to. It can't be helped, but I'm not able to plunge into it as readily as I might have been earlier in this 
adventure we've been taking. So I have my Dark Horse Insider in front of me. A little tricky to find the number, it's 25. It's an X cover. As I recall, X was a top 50 or near to the top 50 book from Dark Horse that month of release. The best-selling Dark Horse book that month for sure. I think the number two was the Star Wars title, Tales of the Jedi. A Dame to Kill For was well within the top 100. Aliens Predator, the Deadliest of the Species was right there with it. I think they were pretty close together, in fact. I can tell you for sure, but I lost my notes, so I'm not gonna look again. Labyrinth number four was out that month, an excess. It states here that it was shipping January 25th, 1994, whereas Music of the Spheres would have come out a week earlier on January the 18th, the same week as Labyrinth number four was Species number four. So there's a two-page Tales of the Mask part four strip by John Arcudi and Rich Heaton, who I believe did Roachmill. You've also got Predator Bad Blood number two coming out January 25th. You've got The Thing from Another World, which was an unsuccessful Dark Horse adaptation that was out on January the 11th. A little surprised I never did a crossover between the aliens and the thing I'm assuming that they were owned by different companies yeah I thought they might have to put some sort of a notification for who were the rights holders but it's not in here hmm. creature from the black lagoon cold cast figure kit for $125 uh, given the multiplier for inflation that would have been a lot of money today $258 based on the US Bureau of Labor and Statistics so a solicitation copy for music of the spheres 104 32 color pages painted cover by Timothy Bradstreet and Guy Burrell by the way again it's Aliens vs. Ninjas. It's not bad, it's just Aliens vs. Ninjas. And this was after like Robocop 2-3, so ninjas were maybe getting a bad name by this point. Little known and underappreciated composer Damon Eddington wants to hatch an alien egg so he can nurture the alien in captivity and capture its sounds of hatred and pain for the ultimate concert. Sounds of rage made from a mouthful of spears. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Mouthful of spears. Say no more, say no more. In this first of a four-issue series, Damon's corporate patron, Sin Sound has taken on the responsibility of procuring the egg for him, a task that will lead to more excitement than the team of ninjas assigned to it were planning on. Well-known horrormeister Chet Williamson takes a turn at spinning an alien tale of dread in a well-envisioned future of synthetic music and android entertainers. Yard chores are ably handled by the Tims, penciler Tim Hamilton and inker Tim Bradstreet. The painted covers are beautifully rendered by Bradstreet, providing the pencil and ink framework for Guy Burwell's airbrush mastery. And you know, that's a pretty accurate description. Not a description that necessarily would have turned me on in 1994, but fairly accurate to the story I finally got around to reading. It is again the penultimate story from Aliens the Original Years Volume 2, the Marvel Omnibus, which is where I read it. And from where I will derive my synopsis. Earth, Manhattan, Christmas Eve. A hero had known everything. How to evade the cameras, how to neutralize the guard, and how to enter the lab that not even medtech VPs knew about. But even a hero was surprised to find no security to greet them. And then something struck Higuchi, and he fell, and he saw the mouth, and he heard the sound. It was like a dreadful music, like the song of demons screaming or angry gods raging, like the music bloody swords would sing. But as his ears filled with it, he knew he was wrong. They were larger and crueler. It was not a mouthful of swords falling on him. It was a mouthful of spears. And that leads to a two-page spread of just a gigantic alien mouth and a little bit of the ninja's profile and hand trying to guard against getting jackhammer jawed in the face. The two-page image was rotated into a full-page advertisement for the miniseries. This was a house ad, ran into Arcor comics. I'm not sure when in the run this happened because the cover image inset within the spread is from the fourth issue and it's got all the trade dress and everything already on it. It's even been edited which we'll get to 
later on. The copy reads, One man's death rattle is another man's symphony. Aliens, music of the spheres, the deadliest of creatures can make the loveliest of noises. Monthly, Dark Horse Comics. As you might imagine, Ninja putting his hand up against Jackhammer Jaws doesn't go well. There's a nice shot of the Jaws coming in sideways on the Ninja's face. So in one cheek, out the opposite. Not an angle you usually see with aliens, so that's somewhat novel. The Ninjas have futuristic cyber sword thingies, so they're actually able to literally disarm the aliens. But of course, it still requires close quarters combat. So a lot of ninjas get messed up, have their faces melted off by acid blood. But apparently, and I'm not sure this has ever been confirmed in continuity, but according to this comics, is if you slice the aliens off at the joint, like at the elbow, you don't get much, if any, spray of xenomorph blood, and therefore it's relatively safe. And so they're literally cutting them off at the knees, cutting them off the elbows to prevent them from the drones from attacking them. The drones that were defending a nest. And there's another thing that I'm not sure if we've seen elsewhere. It looks somewhat familiar, so maybe we have, and I just don't remember. But there's these sort of caliper-looking things that the ninjas attach to the top of eggs to prevent them from opening. Now, all they had to do was get back out. A hero didn't wonder if the eggs were worth the loss of three men, and maybe more before the night was over. This is actually something of a flash-forward. We go back to the beginning of the story to send sound. So you've got the composer guy. I guess I'll call him Damon Eddington one more time, but going forward, it's going to be the composer guy. You know he's not making it out of this story. There's no sense in memorizing an actual name. He goes to his boss at Send Sound. Send Sound is the record company. Now, given the state of the recording industry at this point, am I confident there will be a recording industry 100, 200 years from now? Not so much. And it is a little bit amusing because the story accurately predicts things that have happened or developing in music while simultaneously being laughable in their assumption that the recording industry would be essentially the same. Obviously, things are very, very different now. Maybe it'll come back around again. I mean, if vinyl came back, why can't the recording industry stand of 1994. Composer is basically an artiste, some avant-garde kind of guy, very underappreciated in his time. I'm just going to read some of these captions. When Damon Eggington first heard the scream, he knew it was the oral avatar of hatred and Damon Eddington hated. He hated the few critics who reviewed his compositions. He hated the public, most of whom had never heard his music. But what he hated most was the company that was his patron. He hated Sin Sound. They owned him, along with the rest of the world's music. They could recreate any human voice ever recorded and make it sing new songs. And with Android technology, they could do much more. There's an ad in the background for Buddy Holly sings Garth Brooks 3. There's what appears to be a photostat image of Elvis Presley as an android. Essentially, every artist you ever loved has been remixed, recontextualized, re-anthropomorphized. You've got robots. You've got deep fake fakes, essentially. Deep fake oral, deep fake visuals. They can just mix up whatever music people like in, in whatever ways they care to and make money off of it. Anyway, one of the popular attractions in the city is Presley Hall, where mutadroid rock groups thrashed until the fans got bored. But instead of retiring at 25, they were re-engineered to be more outrageous, shocking, and ever new. Damon's concerts were not quite as popular. Few people appreciated his sound disc montages. He blended his own compositions, recorded on scarce acoustic instruments, with rare recordings of the neglected 18th to 20th century great composers, in an effort to attune listeners to the old and classic forms. The problem was that there were hardly any listeners. Who would listen to serious music, Damon thought, when new thrash came out every week? Still, Sin Sound supported him, giving him enough work and just enough to live on. Enough. Damon had had enough, all right. Those patronizing Sin Sound bastards, showing the world how they sponsored what remained of the arts while promoting crap. The damn public, who wouldn't know real music if you shoved it into their ears with needles? Damon would show them all. He would write a symphony of hate. He called a press conference and told of his plan, spewing invective. Sin Sound only smiled at the 
ravings of their pet artiste. True artists, after all, were supposed to be angry, biting the hand that feeds them. So they humored him, and Damon searched for sounds of hate to repay them. In wars where people died in pain and rage. In madhouses. Among jelly junkies, too long without a vial. He finally found it on a vid disc from the war. Even with the low fidelity of the military recording devices, the screams poured into his ear like hot steel through fat. It stunned him. It terrified him. It seared him. It was the ultimate sound of hatred. So what we're getting to is that the composer needs high quality recordings of aliens, particularly aliens as they're about to kill. That anger, that fury. In-field recordings weren't going to be enough. He needed in-studio. It needed to be perfect. Strangely, not to his surprise, but probably to the surprise of the reader, since sound is actually into it. They're going to bankroll this thing. Now they have their own rationale. Basically, they are part of a mega corporation and their mega corporation is at war with another mega corporation. And so they know if they can organize a raid that's going to capture rare terrestrial aliens in captivity from this rival corporation, MedTech, and then they release an album of recordings of aliens so that MedTech would know who did it, but they'd have plausible deniability. It was just going to be a great big fuck you to their competition. And so that was an easy way of selling the mission to the higher ups. That's how we get the ninjas in. But, you know, MTech is not without its resources. In particular, you've got security team chief Philip Rice, who will be an ongoing presence in the miniseries. Middle-aged African-American, white streaks on either side of his hair. He's pretty much already figured it out. He knows what it would take to have the resources to get into MTech and successfully steal an alien egg. Also, there's probably a bunch of dead ninjas lying around. That was maybe a bit of a tell. And he's got a secret weapon. He's got Old Blue. Old Blue is a cybernetically domesticated drone. Essentially, they put this thing in a harness and they're able to prevent it from getting too far out of bounds. And because aliens can smell their own, particularly from their own tribe, they're going to use the Old Blue as a bloodhound to track down where the alien egg ended up and go after the people responsible. We have an effective ticking time clock to give you some sense of urgency to the story. Crazy Composer is gonna be assisted by two scientists, an old white-haired mustachioed gentleman named Michael Brangwin and a younger female scientist with blonde hair that's usually in a ponytail named Darcy Vance. It's a rare opportunity for them to study aliens as well, so they're getting something out of it besides the money. Problem is, as established in the other Aliens miniseries, they've got an egg, but they don't have an alien yet. And the only way they're gonna get a proper alien is by finding a live subject to incubate. Darcy's the one who gives the news and at first the composer's like kill someone no no i don't want that it's dude michael explains well you know what you got all these jelly junkies you got all these guys who are worshiping the aliens we can go down to the bowery or whatever we can find one of these junkies that want to be impregnated with an alien egg and go from there and that convinces the composer to be on board so once again a hero comes in now this is again head ninja guy he's got a diagonal scar across his right eye beginning at the forehead and extending to the upper cheek so it's center to the right. And then he has a jacked up mustache. It's supposed to be two small mustaches on either side of the lips, but they're way too far apart. So it's really more like the line you would have for a beard, but just two little too far set apart mustaches. At least it gives him some exoticism. Look, it was the 90s. We didn't know better back then. We were like 10 years removed from Peter Sellers playing Asians in yellow face. So the MedTech security team have Old Blue in restraints. They got big poles to help control him. But the problem is down around places like the Church of the Queen Mother. You got a bunch of jelly junkies and aliens are hostile to outside tribes. So Old Blue gets the scent of the jellies that are being sold, freaks out, and even though he's still in a harness, he gets loose and just throttles the junkies and the sellers in the immediate area. He can't bite them, 
but he can smash them against the walls and slam them with his head over and over again until they are just bloody pulps. So that stymies their investigation for a short period of time. Going into this first issue, I was impressed. I was surprised that it didn't completely suck. I thought the premise of it, it was interesting. It certainly, we had done some stuff where like commercials had inserted actors that were long gone into uh, using like uh, maybe some computer-aided superimposition stuff, but you'd seen people who were long dead in movies and a lot of people had issues with the propriety of that. I know I certainly do. Just for the record, in case anybody asked, once I'm dead, don't repurpose any of my stuff to make me continue to exist in any fashion. I'm dead. I did my fucking time. Not that anybody would, just saying. Living will and all that kind of good stuff. Because I like the story, I was like, okay, well, I'll come back to this a little bit. And unfortunately, it took me like a week or two later uh, to get back to it. And so I did lose a little bit of momentum. But I thought it was a really good first issue. Much more novel than I expected. Much more interesting than I expected. But now we can move on to Dark Horse Insider number 26. This is one of those painted John Byrne images. I think it's digitally painted by Matt Webb. It's the cover of Danger Unlimited number one, which if I remember correctly from the um, countdown was somewhere in the back half of the top 50. And this is a book that's being drawn by Kieran Dwyer, who at that time was, I think, the stepson of John Byrne. So not bad, given. You, know, you had the first issue of Colors in Black, which were comics from Spike, meaning Spike Lee. I guess maybe that connection with Rob Liefeld had given him the thought that, hey, maybe I could do some comics too. This guy could do it. I remember buying Colors of Black number one. I, I wasn't super into it. I didn't end up getting the rest of the miniseries. I don't think it did anything sales-wise. I almost never see this book. Got a solicitation for Rack and Pain number one, the Chaos comic that wasn't. Written by Brian Polito with covers by Greg Capullo. I've never been able to see that as a Dark Horse book. I don't think Chaos had started yet or they were about to start at that point, but it's always been weird to me that you've got such a chaosy looking book coming from Dark Horse. We've got the start of Indiana Jones and the Arms of Gold for miniseries by Lee Mars and Leo Dorona. I don't think that did anything. I hardly ever see that book. You've also got Indiana Jones Thunder in the Orient number six by Dan Barry and Dan Spiegel. That one also probably didn't do anything. And, you know, one's March 1st. The other one is February 15th. So it's like maybe a little too much Indiana Jones going at the same time as well as the aliens. Uh, speaking of excess aliens content, this is the month that Dark Horse Comics came out with the aliens cover story featuring art by Paul Mendoza. You got Predator Bad Blood number three... Another edition of Tales of the Mask strip. From Star Wars, you got classic Star Wars number 17, which were just reprints of Marvel material. You've got Tales of the Jedi number five. Again, I, I know at this point that was still, if it wasn't in the top 50, it was very near to 50. You've got the back two issues of the Robocop Roulette miniseries. I don't think those cracked the top 100. You've got the launch of Catalyst Agents of Change, which unlike X didn't crack, if I recall correctly. Probably didn't hurt that Doug Monkey was drawing X at the time. And again, here's Dark Horse International with Aliens Volume 2 number 21 in February 15th. Okay, so I guess that was a monthly. I know sometimes they had two issues in here though, so it's not just me. Aliens Music of the Spears number two, solicitation copy. Composer Damon Eddington's plan is to breed an alien in captivity so he can stimulate and entice it into a rage, just for the pure sound of it. He starts by feeding terrified and utterly defenseless dogs and cats to the beast, but it hardly makes a sound while dispatching them in an instant. Maybe some larger and more voracious predatory animals would put up a better struggle. But as Damon daydreams about other more nefarious uses for his pet, he finally realizes that in order to achieve the sounds he wants, he's going to need the ultimate predators to face off against the alien, humans. Which again, is a pretty solid, concise description of what happens in this book. I'd almost say they're telling you a little too much. So the second cover, again, Brad 
Street and Burwell. Pretty graphic. You've got a chest burster sort of delicately coming out of the body of a bald-haired man who's just sort of looking at it, seemingly still alive. People do die with their eyes open and their mouths agape. I am a little surprised that this cover got by, and I'm wondering if maybe they got some pushback on that cover since it will impact on the cover coming later on. So they pick up somebody who is a willing host for an egg, and the composer actually recognizes him. Guy just goes like, hello, Damon. You know him? He's the best guitarist I've ever heard. I want to talk to him. I started with Jelly, Damon. A new high. Not really different at first, but then I started to hear the music. The music? Music I heard when I played. I never played like that before. Some people said it was worse, but I heard it is better. So I took more of the stuff. He's a jelly junkie, I should add. And the more I took, the better I sounded. After a while, I didn't need my guitar at all. All I had to do was move my fingers to hear the music. And then I didn't even have to do that. It didn't matter that no one else heard it. I did, and it kept getting more beautiful. Church music, like Bach, only more sublime. So I had to worship at the source. And once I did, I knew that I had to give myself to it, become one with it. But Ken, to die like that, not death, I'd live on, in my God, live and be the music. And you have no doubts? Maybe. A little afraid. Just a little. And sure enough, once they actually have him in the room with the egg, he does start to hesitate. He asks to wait, but nah, too, too late for take backs. Ninja Boy's holding him. Egg opens. Face Hugger does the job. The old white guy, scientist, he's clearly shocked. He's sweating. He's got his hands on his mouth. Lady scientist, she's a little bit more cerebral, a little more cold. She's just sort of looking on. A little disdainful looking, actually. Maybe a little like, that's kind of gross, but she's still watching. Ninja guy, completely unfazed. I can't entirely tell you what the composer's doing. He's got kind of that crazy-eyed look. I think he's too busy thinking about what this all means to him. When the guitarist guy goes down and they put him into a containment area, he drops his little jelly jar. And the composer guy is like, hmm, puts that in his pocket. Everybody goes, takes a nap. It's going to take a while. It takes about 14 hours before anything happens. The face hugger carcass falls off and our guitarist is freaking out. He's sweaty. He's got stuff coming out of his nose. Where's the music? Bring it back. Bring back the music, please! But he hears nothing, not even the ocean, and surely not the sound of his god, as he holds the carcass up against his ear like it's a conch or something. Two hours later, the sensors show that the time of nativity is near. Vital signs through the roof, recording instruments going, chest burst are active. Damon readies his recording devices. Vance and Brangwin stand by the vid disc machine, and the birth pangs begin, becoming pain so great that the host falls to the ground in agony. But the weight of a man is no impediment to birth, and the newborn creature sings a melody of searing flesh and spilled blood, a song that shreds Damon Eddington's soul and knits it together again. And in hours to come, he listens to the sounds over and over as he watches the creature grow and nourish itself. Yes, eat and grow big and strong, my little progeny, my little Mozart. It is the right name. So young, so talented, with such an appetite. And as Damon watches his child grow, he feels the rage it bears in its every movement. Damon Eddington knows what it is to be an alien, not at home in this world, unappreciated and misunderstood and this being is the physical manifestation of all his frustration and wrath. This being is perfect. Its voice, Shriabin's poem of ecstasy and poem of fire in one. He's fully grown now. And so they're going to have to start feeding this thing. And Lady Doctor is curious. He, she's the one who wants to feed the creature as often as possible because she wants to associate herself with the creature. She wants that creature to associate her with sustenance, with something that's beneficial to him. Meanwhile, the composer goes back to his apartment, falling asleep, watching the violin of jelly. When he wakes, he remembers what Ken said about the vial of jelly and drinks, and dreams awake. 
He is Mozart born, growing, free, free to slay Keen, who made him beg, and Yoriku, whose company patronized and laughed at him, free to slay all those too lazy, too cruel, too stupid to know what true music is. But through it all, the rage and the joy, he hears nothing, not a scream, not a cry, not a note of music. When he wakes, one thought possesses him. I need to hear it. Sing for me, damn you. Scream. Come on. But Mozart only hisses, soft and low, and retreats into the darkness at the rear of the cage. Get something for me. Something he can fight. Something he can kill. I don't care. Animals. Something alive. And so, sure enough, as in the solicitation, cats, dogs, not worth bothering with. Don't do anything. Calls are made. Orders are placed. A few more crates are hardly noticed. Even the crates have holes. The only sounds Damon gets that satisfy him come when Mozart fights the bull. The horns actually tear Mozart open, spraying the bull's hide with acid blood. The bull continues to bellow until Mozart tears off its head. But the hoofed creature's sounds are crude, compared to Mozart's furious shrieks. A challenge even to Damon's equipment to capture. It is like harnessing lightning in a net, and it is wonderful. Now I know what we need. Predators. Something that can hurt him. So in the darkness, a hero and the ninjas go shopping. At the Manhattan Zoo, I should add. As does Damon. But the alien jelly muddies his mind rather than clears it. He watches Mozart for hours on end. Neither of them at rest. Sometimes he speaks to Mozart, but more often to himself. I can feel you. Your rage. But why can't I hear your music? Sing for me, so that I can sing for you. Give me more. More. And then they let loose a big cat in the cage. The panther leaps to the attack. Mozart falls back for a moment. The giant cat's claws tear through his carapace. And when it buries its snout in his midsection, Mozart screams. To Damon, the sound is exquisite and orgasmic. And he thinks of the music he will blend with it. Phrases from hymns. Corigliano. Shostakovich. Honegger. Those 20th century apostles of rage. But then the music stops. The panther is dead. No, no, damn it, it was too easy. It wasn't enough. I need more. But it's just not enough. And eventually, the composer's like, give me some humans. You know, he's going to have to have somebody who can properly fight. Somebody who can last a little while. It's actually not his idea. It's Ninja Guy's idea. What he's figuring is, we'll give him some cattle prods without enough electricity to actually kill the alien. Just enough to piss it off. Get it shrieking. Now, at this point, they're not grabbing people who want to be there. They're not going to put up a fight, necessarily. Uh, this is their god, after all. So, they're, they're going to clubs, finding drunks and criminals and addicts. And again, by this point, Composer doesn't care. He just wants the sounds that he wants. Kill the fuckers. But he also knows that they're going to have to have more room to do the proper fighting. So the scientists get together and they start bringing in a bunch of steel. There's enough budget still for that. And they essentially create a maze that the alien and the humans can move around in, give them more time, more sounds, play around the acoustics some, creating some spaces that are too narrow for the alien to get into so that he could like have to actually fight to try to get at a human being, give them a little bit of a fighting chance. It is a lie. There is no chance of survival. But the man plunges out of the cage, his finger on the trigger. The shock rocks Mozart, and from his fanged mouth issues a cry of pain. In it is the torment of a hundred men wounded in war, cursing lead and steel, the agony of a thousand women, made childless by plague, shrieking at fate, the fury of a million souls blazing in hell, screaming at God. It is the most glorious sound Damon Eddington has ever heard, and he will hear it again, over and over and over, until he has enough. But the more Damon hears, the more he fears that he will never have enough. I gotta say, the Tim Bradstreet covers are really nice. They're distinctive from other aliens' covers. He is a natural fit for the material. Unfortunately, they decided to lead with the worst of the covers, Ninjas versus Alien. I'm sure some people thought that was a good sales move. For me, it just seemed cheesy as heck. The second cover of the Chestburster is great. The third cover is a representation of what we just described. It's a man holding one of the cattle prod things while he's being hunted by the alien in the maze. The man is someone in shadow, 
so it's more of a blue-purple where he's at. And then the section where the alien is walking past him, not quite aware of his presence, that's more of a pinkish-red. It's just really nice color theory, really nice illustration. Solicitation copy reads, Normal faceless human guinea pigs aren't proving to be any more adept at drawing the necessary screams out of Damon Eddington's pet alien, Mozart, than any of the other animals were. Damon, increasingly dependent on the addictive and mind-numbing alien jelly, schemes to trap his cohort, Darcy Vance, as fodder for Mozart's murderous desires. Darcy's parry with Mozart provides minimal satisfaction for Damon, who's seeking nothing but the ultimate love and death cry of anguish from the alien to record for his symphony. But the jelly's affecting Damon's reasoning, and he may be ready to overstep the bounds of reason in his pursuit of the apocalyptic scream. This copy is deceptive. In broad strokes, it describes what happens in the issue, but the particulars are off particularly the motivations. Essentially, what's actually happening in the story, yes, Damon, the composer guy, he's taking way too much jelly, he's becoming irrational, but he does have most of what he needs from the humans that they put in there. He's got a lot of great screens. What he doesn't have is his finale. Something is missing. So far, there is only ignorant rage, but to end his masterwork, Damon needs more. A sense of compassion, of intimacy. The jelly, the essence of the beast itself, will tell him, will show him what he must do. And from his memory a strain of music washes over him. Wagner's Liebestod from Tristan und Isolde. Liebestod, love death, love, a concept unknown to Mozart. But with one person, he is closer to affection than anyone else. Love death. So it's not like he randomly picks the female scientist. What it is is she's been trying her best to bond with the alien, to create associations between herself and benevolence. She recognizes that aliens are pure death. The xenomorph cannot be bargained with, reasoned with, blah, blah, blah. What she wants to know is if you could create just enough compassion in this creature to make it hesitate before it kills you. Is there anything in there that's successful at all? That's what she wants to know. And to some degree, so does the composer because he wants to know if the alien in killing her would feel some sort of remorse. He wants a different sound based on a different relationship between this alien and this human. But we haven't touched on somebody in a while. Medtech, Chief Rice, they've done some improvements on the harness for Old Blue. Now he's got a sedation button. It took weeks to develop it. Intravenous drips of Surgilin, Medtech's most powerful anesthetic, administered by Rice with the touch of a button. So essentially, they can take Old Blue out. If it starts to get agitated, they can chill it out and hopefully refocus it so that they can find their lost egg. So old white guy scientist is arguing with Composer about how much more they need. He has a little bit more human compassion than the rest of these people, but obviously he's still clearly complicit. He's pretty much tired of being cooped up and he wants to hear some other kind of music. Uh, he invites the Composer because he got two passes to the Helltones concert upstairs because apparently they're they're in a warehouse near to Presley Hall. Of course, the composer hates that trash. Scientist guy says, me too, but I think it's important to be familiar with all aspects of contemporary music. He invites Darcy, a female scientist, to go with him. She's like, no thanks. I'll just stay and observe Mozart. Okay, have a peaceful night. I'm sure I won't. See you later. And so you got these two people continuing to have their differing obsessions with Mozart. Composer guy takes another swig of jelly grabs one of his less important keyboards and smashes the scientist over the head with it. He hopes that he doesn't kill her. He drags her into a feeding cage, but leaves the two sections isolated until she's able to wake up because it's going to be way better if she's awake. He's going to get better acoustics that way. He wants to maybe hear her sounds too. 
This is being intercut with the Helltones and Presley Hall. The robots that are doing the singing, they've actually been combined with aliens. The singer has jackhammer jaws. It's supposed to heighten the experience. They, they've always got to go to a new extreme to get people interested. And eventually, old dude scientist manages to get into the music. He's just a fan, what can I tell you? Female scientist wakes up. She's like, you bastard, you maniac, you, you can't do this. this it's murder. And Closer's rightly pointing out, we're all murderers here, my dear. Besides, you don't have to die. There's a stunner right outside your door. If you stay calm and move slow, you can get it. So let's see what good friends you are. Let's see how much he likes you. I hope he does. And Damon takes all the jelly he has left. The jelly that inspired and maddened him. I hope he's in agony over killing you. Yes, I hope he wails his little heart out, if he has one. With a squeal of metal, the door opens. You can see the spear-like teeth, though they are not yet parted. He moves slowly, trying to make no noise at all as she nears the stunner. And she cannot help but wonder why he does not roar and attack. But she knows she must concentrate only on getting the weapon, not on working on alien minds. And at last, it's hers. Ever so carefully, she embraces it and flicks on the power switch. She's relieved to hear its low hum answer Mozart's continuous hiss and thanks to God she has never before believed in for the automatic shutoff. Then she remembers why it shut off. When a dead man's hand fell from the trigger, she shudders, then realizes that Mozart has not yet moved. Maybe it has all been worthwhile. Maybe it won't harm her. Then again, to pause a moment before it kills you. She had gotten the most she could hope for. The thunder crackles and a wide arc of fire surges through the creature. It screams. And in its cry, Damon hears the sound of a child betrayed, a savage innocence violated, the sound he wants. Now Vance fires to Mozart's right side, driving him in that direction. She continues to send pounding flame to Mozart's right and keeps moving to her right, ever closer to the passageway that she helped construct. Mozart's unending screams delight Damon, causing him to push the volume higher and higher until feedback squeals through the room, resonating in every cell of human and alien, confusing and slowing Mozart and making Vance grit her teeth. But she takes advantage of the distraction to move another precious meter nearer the passageway. In another moment, Mozart counters her move. But since she can count on no further distractions from Damon, she creates a final one herself. She throws the prod rifle thingy at Mozart. Damon is even more startled than Mozart, who recoils, not realizing the device itself is harmless. It gives Vance just enough time to dash into the passageway. Mozart is quickly after her, and Damon exults in the sounds that he will soon have, since Vance is now defenseless. Vance dives for a tunnel, just large enough for a human, too small for an alien. Mozart is unable to grab her leg, but in his attempt, slashes her ankle to the bone. Still, she crawls deeper into the tunnel, beyond Mozart's reach, fumbles with a recessed catch, and falls through the escape panel she and Brangwen had designed for the workmen, in case Mozart's sedation had worn off when they were inside the cage. She lies three feet below the cage floor, unable to move, feeling the blood leave her body, and her consciousness slip away. Damon, anticipating the sounds he will hear at any moment, turns on every sonic booster on the board, sending more power than ever through the system. Too much power. And the breakers do what they are intended to do. No, not now! Mozart scrabbles at the mouth of the tunnel, reaching for his prey. Damon listens but hears nothing. Perhaps there is time. Desperately, he grabs a portable sound disc recorder and a mic, turns them on, and runs to the cage. Then he realizes he will have to open the door to capture the music. The prey is gone, out of reach. All I have to do is just open the door and step in. He'll be busy with her in the passage. When the music ends, I step back out. You'll never even see me. And Damon softly opens the door, but not softly enough. Damon enters the cage, bringing on his breath and shirt front, the pheromones of another hive. The creature moves so fast that Damon feels he is running, in jelly. The hissing burns his ears and melts his brain so that he barely feels the creature touch him, barely feels it pick him up, but the rest he feels. Damon screams, destroyed by what he has created and nurtured and strangely loved. And in his ears, his own death cry is the music he has been 
searching for. And his last thought is the hope that the mic is still on. Everything here is dead, but above, stairways and ramps, there are sounds and scents, deep vibrations from powerful speakers, screams of multitudes, strange and myriad pheromones, time to rock and roll. So as I'm reading this story, you know, like I, I get to the halfway point and they're already feeding all kinds of creatures to the alien and it's already getting kind of samey-samey, not only within the story itself, but also with most other alien stories. It's tricky because there are certain things you're going to want to have in an alien story, but just from sheer repetition, from having so many different alien stories being told at the same time within these comics, it's hard not for it to feel a little monotonous. Not as into the story as it was progressing. But then you get to the third part, everything is doing exactly what you know is going to happen. It's, it's basically paying off everything they've already set up. You know the composer's going to come to a bad end. It's going to be an EC twist kind of thing. They make reference again to M-Tech, so you're assuming they're going to be involved pretty quickly. You know Damon's going to turn on the female scientist. You know there's going to be a cat and mouse thing there. At the end of the third issue, the composer's already dead. The scientist is at least, for now, safely stashed away. So it's sort of like, okay, what do you have left? What are you going to do with the fourth issue? It's like, okay, I guess we're going to do the M-Tech guy stuff. It does sort of lose momentum because most everybody you care about has already gone to where they're going to go. And the key resolution is already there. And kind of, it's easy to guess, especially if you have a month gap between issues. You kind of know how this is going to end. So I guess that's one of my problems is it becomes very conventional. If you've been reading the book, you've seen the setup and you're just waiting for the payoffs and they're paying off pretty much the way you thought they would, maybe a little earlier, but essentially it's what you expect. And so going to the fourth issue, you've got another Bradstreet cover. It's also really cool. There's a lot of green ooze on a laboratory floor. You've got a xenomorph drone standing above the composer guy. The composer guy has a shirt on with a lot of blood on the shirt. The reason for that is that in the original line art, it was a burst chest with the bones of the ribcage sticking out. It was determined that that was a little too graphic for cover and that it needed to censor it. I'm not sure if it was Bradstreet himself who censored it because later on in the omnibus, you get to see his original artwork and it's in black and white and it features the rib cage. So I'm not sure that they ever drew over that. It might've just been a situation where they more like erased it from whatever version of the line art they were going to use for the airbrushing. And they told the guy just put a bunch of blood in there to cover up for it. But it's still a nice looking cover. It is a little graphic, but it's a nice looking cover. Solicitation copy reads, Mozart, Damon Eddington's pet alien, has yet to reduce the sound he desires for his ultimate symphony. Even the humans he tried using to stimulate Mozart didn't satisfy Damon's needs. Now it appears Damon himself must be the guinea pig that finally gets Mozart to scream his ultimate music of the spears. Suffice it to say, Mozart puts on the impromptu performance of a lifetime, and the Presley Hall audience eats it up in this concluding chapter to Dark Horse's latest Aliens Gore Fest. So once again, misleading copy. Damon's already heard every sound he's ever going to get out of Mozart and is content in his death. Going to have nothing to do with the last issue for the most part, but they do allude to where this is going. So we've got the med tech guys, Chief Rice, Old Blue. They come, they make their way into the labs. They're a lot more professional than the ninjas were. They're not running around killing everybody. They have that powerful sedative. So they take the guards, they make the guards take them where they want to be. Then they sedate them. Obviously this area isn't anywhere near as well guarded as M-Tech was either. So it kind of tells you that Sin Sound probably isn't such a great competitor to MedTech. It's probably why they're competitors because they're doing this trifling bullshit where MedTech has a much easier time steamrolling over them. Admittedly, this isn't like one of their main headquarters or anything. This is a impromptu sound studio essentially, but still they look like pushovers by comparison. And again, MedTech doesn't have to kill anybody to get what they want. So they do make their way to the lab. They find the remains 
remains of this composer guy. They're trying to follow the loose drone. They want to make sure they reclaim their property. I think there might actually be a human element of them wanting to make sure to take care of a loose drone within a human population. But they go in the wrong direction initially. I think they go down where the alien goes up. Makes his way to Presley Hall. Lots of people are doing jelly. Freaks out the alien. He goes out. First thing he does is start trashing the robotic band. It's something that the audience has never seen before. They're already getting tired of the band anyway. These guys had already been hot for like a month, so they're already ready for the next big thing. Only old scientist dude recognizes what's happening here. And he's like, uh-oh, I better get the hell out of here. The alien destroys the band, and then he goes into the audience and starts ripping them apart. The junkies are dropping their vials, which just means more pheromones are in the air, which makes the alien even more freaked out. But all the hullabaloo apparently draws the med tech guys. Rice is like, so much for keeping this quiet. They put together their heavy equipment. At first, I thought they were going to try to anesthetize the drone, but it actually turns out they have some sort of a rocket launcher with them. Rice says, there's plenty more where you came from, pal. And while Mozart's blood splashes acid on the flesh of those nearby, his screams plunge a sound just as acidic into the ears of all who hear. So, yeah, there's a lot of carnage. Yeah, there's a lot of dead concert goers. But Mozart's dead, and a message has clearly been sent not to fuck around with med tech. So they go back downstairs. By now, a hero has been alerted and rushes to Presley Hall with two of his ninjas. Their first duty is to protect the apiary. But when they get there, what they find surprises them as much as it does Brangwen, who has himself only just arrived from above. But footsteps on the stairs interrupt, and three trained guns against three trained swords is never a contest, especially at a distance. The echoes of the firing die away until all that is heard is the dripping of blood and the hissing of the alien, this being Old Blue. You want to live? Answer my questions. Who stole the egg? An old scientist dude points to the corpse of Ninja Blue And who won the egg? Scientist guy points at Composer Guy. You see what it got them? Tell Sin Sound not to try it again. Not unless he wants a war. Brangwen, thinking himself alone with the dead, is surprised to hear one speak. It's not the guards who he discovers are still alive. It seems to come from inside the cage. And he sees her. Vance. Lady Scientist is calling for help and weakly notes. Here, Mozart, he hesitated just for a moment. She passed out from loss of blood, but old scientist guy manages to get her out okay. The right people are paid off. The whole thing is covered up by the media. Three months later, Brangwen looks out on the audience who will soon hear the world premiere of the Rage Symphony by Damon Eddington, completed by Michael Brangwen. The audience is small, a few critics, a very few fans, and others. At least the head of Sin Sound is there, along with his new mistress. And so the official story is Brangwen died in a skiing accident. Someone notes that she didn't know that he skied. He didn't. Uh, you can see from the crutches that Lady Scientist is there. She's got a new close-cropped haircut. The concert begins, filling the small recital hall with music and alien fury. The reviews would not be kind. That same evening, two blocks away in Presley Hall. The Presley Hall slaughter is being recreated where it happened, endangering only androids, both those on stage and those in the audience. Everyone adores it, even those who survived that night. But the best moment of all is when the grenade splits the alien's carapace. No blood, no acid, only the sound recorded on that night, the death scream. The scream David Eddington had hungered for but never heard. The scream that soars up and over the roaring mob, until their own screams of delight swallow it up. And we end as we began, with an extreme close-up of gigantic Xenomorph jaws and jackhammer jaws all screaming together. So you kind of knew it was going to go there, but it got there in a slightly different way than maybe you would have expected. The artwork isn't what it could have been. Tim Hamilton was uh, the main artist on most of the early stories from The Trouble with Girls. So he started out and pretty much stayed in indie stuff. He did mostly work for Dark Horse after he left Malibu. He's he's okay. He's he's an alright storyteller, but it, it, not somebody who's ever going to have a fan following. Uh, if I recall 
Consequently, he did the Titan book for Comics Greatest World, uh, who was their Superman knockoff. Here he's being inked by Tim Bradstreet, and I've seen instances where Bradstreet really assimilated the penciler. Obviously, that works pretty well because Bradstreet's a pretty cool penciler himself, good artist, but he's clearly not putting in the effort here. Maybe they weren't paying him enough, I don't know. The effort's going into the covers, the art in the interiors, there's, there's some nice splash pages here and there, but it's mostly serviceable. Sometimes it gets a little rough, in fact. The artists have this annoying habit on certain splash pages and panels of making sure to put a really obtrusive signature that says like Tim and Tim. Uh, it's not needed. I guess it helps them with the aftermarket, but it, it's, it really kind of takes you out of the story for that second that you're looking at the panel. What should be impactful, you're just going, why did you put a signature to that? Especially because they're usually not particularly good. Especially, you know, these guys, both of these guys have done better material than this. But like I said, the art's fine. It's nothing I was going to be complaining about, really. We're doing a Krillin analysis on this podcast, so it, it bears mentioning. But I think that most people, while they're reading the book, they would be fine with it. Uh, the story kind of has fits and starts, but I think overall it's, it's pretty good. I was happy with it. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's such a long synopsis. Plus, I didn't script it and therefore did not edit it to get it more concise. But no, I, th I think it was actually rather worthwhile. I had such low expectations going in that certainly helped thwart the doubt and administer the benefit as a result. Not the greatest, kind of mid-tier or maybe upper mid-tier, but certainly much better than I expected. Now, this was back in the time period where Dark Horses were still doing novelizations of all their miniseries. So you think, well, hey, you got a novelist right here. Why don't you have him do the novelization of his own story? Nope. Uh, they went with Ivan Novato. The novelization features a painting covered by John Bolton, but he's in, it's basically a man in robes. It looks more like a religious story than a musical story. Novato is about 10 years younger than Chet Williamson. She's born in 57. Despite the name, she appears to be Caucasian, so I'm guessing she's a Navarro by marriage rather than birth. She is pretty much defined by her novelizations of media. She's done a number of Aliens projects. She did a Supernatural book. She did the movie adaptation for the first Hellboy. She did multiple Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels. In particular, she did the two Willow Files novels for young adults and two of the Tales of the Slayer novels. But she did a, a total of uh, about nine Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels. She did a Babylon 5. She's done some stuff related to The Rocketeer. She did novelizations for the movies Species and Species 2, Electra, and Ultraviolet. I was really shocked to find that Ultraviolet had a novelization. Uh, I don't envy her trying to turn that story into something coherent in a novel. She's done a number of novels of her own material as well, but they don't seem to hit the same way. She had one series that only lasted two editions. Two series, actually, that only lasted two editions. Uh, and then a bunch of one-offs. So yes, there was a novelization, but in something that I found particularly pointed, this book never got collected in trade paperback. And in the Marvel Omnibus, they actually give us several cover sketches. One, a single cover. One, a wraparound cover by Duncan Fegredo. And they did try to incorporate the musical aspects that they seem to be hiding in the Tim Bradstreet covers in the Fegredos. But I think maybe the music aspect was one of the reasons why the singer is never collected. I just think it probably underperformed and there were probably too many free-floating copies of the floppies available to show any real demand for a trade paperback. Also, again, we're getting into 1994. So even the publishers had to be aware that things just weren't doing what they used to do. And so maybe don't push it. 
<laughs> I think that's a shame because I've certainly read worse alien stories, but it, it was a nice, happy surprise. Uh, again, having read so much stuff and so much samey, samey stuff, it's nice to get something with a little bit of a, a different twang to it, a different perspective. I like the musical angle. I wish a little bit more had been done with the musical angle, in fact. Most of that's done with in the beginning of the book. But yeah, it, it's a good miniseries, and I would actually recommend checking it out. And certainly, I, I never would have without this project, without the omnibuses. So once again, uh, it helps to validate the purchase. Between the Pages blog, Big Tone, Billy Hines, who noted, but of Predator and a potted history of Dark Horse comics, up your street perhaps, Comrade Bolsky, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, The Comic Crush, commission artist at The Arctic Artist 19, Dear Watchers, an Omniversal Comic Book Podcast, Del Dracula, Dirk Ashton is finally finishing Kraken Rider Z, Ed Moore, Gananoga, History of Comics on Film, Horror Glamour Retro, The Irredeemable Shag, Jimmy Allen, J.A. Books, Just Julio Raul, Keith G. Baker, Lamar the Revenger, Maria Gaigiza, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Moose Matson the Hobo with the High Kick, Movie Matt Sirois, Myers Sr., Petrus Furtado, Rihanna Mike, Richard Field, Sim Titulo, Suburban Commando, Superbound, Tales from the Troubled Brow, Talk Nerdy to Me, Towards Peace, Oofta, who added, Can't wait for this one, still have a bunch of episodes I need to catch up on, referring to the Predator Omnibus episode, and finally is with Jameson. This has been a Roald Spine Podcast. All audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws. No copyright infringement is intended. presents Alien Stronghold with guest Senor Jose Fixit.